Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. Let's give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today I have a very special guest, someone everybody has been waiting for. I have Galen on, who's the CEO of Talon, who is the main company building out Urbit. Galen, how's it going? Hey man, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a, it's, uh, I saw you guys all around Twitter. I saw Jesse Walden tweeting about you and I dove in and I'm like, we got to have these guys on. Oh yeah, I've known Jesse for a long time. Actually, that's I like that. That's where you found out about us. Yeah, I think I met Jesse when he was doing Media Chain, uh, which also reveals a little bit about how long I've been working on Urban. Yeah, it's uh, Jesse's. You know, somebody I insanely respect in the space, and uh, you know, anything he looks at is something I make sure is on my calendar. Nice. But Galen, let's go into who you are, and then we'll go into what Urban is after that. Sure, sounds good. So. Let's see. I'm the CEO of Talon. Like you mentioned, Talon is really like the main company that builds Urbit. Uh, there's actually another company now. And of course, like a group of open source contributors and people who own parts of the address space. So we make the distinction because, you know, Urbit is the project owned by many people and Talon is company. My background is kind of unusual. I grew up near Silicon Valley, kind of in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by technology people and sort of weirdo hippies, all of whom were really interested in doing strange things with technology. But I was really interested in doing design and just making stuff in general. So I learned to program really young, but I was more interested in making visual stuff. So I actually went to architecture school eventually. I worked in the advertising industry. And I built a lot of technology over the years. So I built a, just a ton of kind of conventional web stack, like, I mean, full, complete, you know, uh, CRM system from scratch, like uh, huge e-commerce stuff, stuff like that. Uh, so much so, actually, that I was completely sick of it and also totally disillusioned with the tech stack and felt like uh, there must be something better. And that's sort of what drew me to or into Urbit uh, eventually, where I started working on Urbit full-time in 
2014, I think, and took over as CEO in 2016 or maybe late 2015. That's interesting. So what was the genesis of Urbit? And I know we have a lot to go into here, but what's the elevator pitch? So the simplest elevator pitch, (laughs) which is, yeah, like uh, leaves out a lot of details. It's basically that Urbit is a peer-to-peer network and operating system for the 21st century. So basically, you know, there are two pieces of technology, a new identity system and what we call an overlay OS. So an operating system that runs on top of any cloud server, any Linux with an internet connection. It's designed to be vastly simpler and it's owned by the person actually operating it. It can last for a really, really long time. That's the high level, and you know we can drill down into the details. Yeah, let's drill down on the OS side. I mean, for somebody that hasn't spent a lot of time on Urbit, and for you know people listening to the show, everybody thinks of an operating system as you know what's on their iPhone. They think of Windows on their computer. What's the comparison of the Urbit OS to kind of what people know today? Yeah, so the closest analogy that I can find is really like the super apps that are really popular in Asia. So there's, I think line is in Japan, Kakao talk in uh, Korea and uh, uh, WhatsApp in, uh, in China. And so, no, this is not an OS in the kind of really what's grown out of like the 1970s sense or 1980s sense. Right. So, the thing that you boot your laptop into is just a way of managing all these different processes running on hardware. And there's this huge disparity, of course, from, in, from a user experience standpoint between what your you know, desktop OS does and what it's like to use all of these web apps. So at a very high level, you can just think of Urbit as an OS that's designed around making a bunch of web app-like things play well together. So WeChat, if you if anyone is not familiar, I encourage people to kind of go learn about it. It's kind of amazing. WeChat is centered around communication, but from there allows you to do all of these different things like send payments, make reservations, uh, write, uh, collect friends together to uh, split a bill or whatever. Um, and there are a bunch of API extensions that let developers build on top of this sort of multimodal way that people actually communicate and collaborate. I would argue that from a user standpoint, it feels like an operating system. Technically, of course, it's not running on bare metal. So Urban is much more like WeChat in the sense that it's an OS than like Mac OS. Uh, although I think that Urban, you know, in some ways, our long-term competition probably is your phone OS um, in terms of iOS or Android, because I would say that I think Urban provides a better user experience in the long run than iOS or Android. Uh, and hopefully even does layer over your desktop OS, but that's pretty far in the future. Lot to unpack there, and you guys are definitely biting off a lot, so I, I respect the vision and everything you guys are doing there. The other thing you guys mentioned on your site is kind of a peer-to-peer OS. What exactly does that mean? Right, so each instance of these... so. Technically, it's probably important to cover what this actually is. So, Urbit is just a pro, Urbit OS is just a program. You can install it on any cloud server, on any laptop that looks like Linux with an internet connection. So, any Mac, any Linux machine, or on Windows, you need to use a, some kind of something to virtualize it. That program, you know, run, you, you have to feed it a key, and that key is your, to your ID. We can talk about the identity system in a minute. That node runs independently. So, when you 
go and talk to other people on the network, uh, share files with them or collaborate them with them, you know, share data with them in any way. That's all done completely peer-to-peer, meaning node-to-node, and it's all sort of authenticated and encrypted, right? You have your own keys, you're using your own keys to do key exchange with someone else and talk to them directly. Understood. So just to round this out, to make sure I'm understanding it and for the listeners, especially because it's my first time, a lot of this sounds like what a lot of projects in the blockchain space are already trying to do, right? Like Ethereum wants to be an entire, you know, house an entire stack for DeFi and Web3. Blockstack is kind of doing something similar, but, you know, it's more compacted stack. How do you guys think about yourself when you go up against something like Ethereum or others? And apologies if this is a dumb question. I just want to kind of round out the no. comparisons. No, it's a good question. Um, and it's, yeah, it's important to know uh, where we fit into this. So, uh, I think it's fair, you know, Ethereum likes to talk about the Ethereum as like a global computer, which I think is a fair way to talk about it because, of course, like the computer is in fact running as this distributed system on all these nodes. Urbit, by comparison, is running, you know, your Urbit is one node. So these two systems, I think of them as basically cooperative. So if there's anything that you need to do on chain, be it the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, any blockchain, Think of Urbit as like the environment from which you call out to the chain, right? Right now, I have to plug in a hardware wallet or plug a key in to a client that I get from somewhere. And my argument would be, well, that the place you get that client should be Urbit. So it's sort of like Urbit plus a blockchain to me accomplishes sort of is the missing piece of this vision that you're going to use Ethereum or any blockchain-based system as an actual computing environment. Maybe like a simple way of articulating how that's really true would be basically, you know, how do I do, say, passive algorithmic trading without any involvement on my part with existing technology? And so, of course, your algorithm has to run somewhere. It has to live somewhere when you're not there. And right now, that doesn't, you know, like what computer is that? Like to use the blockchain you need a computer and you want that computer to be very simple and very secure. And that's what Urbit is a good candidate for. Anyway, I can also talk about Blockstack if you want, but, but does that, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. you could compare to Blockstack too. I think that makes sense. Not just because it is a lot to unpack here and you guys do have a grand vision. Yeah, sure. So I think of Blockstack as the sort of Blockstack vision of the world, as I understand it is much more like, if I want to start a sort of YC style startup, something, so, I mean, and they have many existent examples of this. So let's say in the case of they have Graphite, which I think is their sort of Google Docs competitor. So the idea is that the Graphite developers use Blockstack as their stack or as the primary components of their stack to build this thing where I go to graphite.com and I log in with Blockstack. Uh, and, and my data is then you know, persisted to the Blockstack components. The biggest difference is that in in Urbit world, from a user experience standpoint, what we envision is more that you log into Urbit, developers build software once, distribute it to the Urbit network. And so what I see is a kind of customized environment of the things that I want to run and the people that I want to connect with. So the developer experience is different in that a developer builds something and just deploys it to the Urbit network. Uh, and the user experience is different in that sort of I see the things that I am actually running and want to use rather than sort of going to each individual company's site. 
technically, Urbit and Blockstack really couldn't be more different in that, like, Urbit is its own running process, it's its own virtual machine. And Blockstack, as I understand it, and I don't understand it super deeply, is a bunch of different components, many of which use uh, widely deployed blockchains. Understood. No, definitely a lot of technical differences there. So I guess let's say we're five years into the future, just to conceptualize this for people. Urbit takes off, you know, what, whatever that means at the time. What, like, you know, a user wakes up in the morning, how does Urbit interact and, and take part of their daily life? Like, I'm just kind of wondering, like, the lifespan for, for a person. Yeah, good question. Yeah, we don't expect the vision is, you know, kind of staggeringly big. Uh, and we're very much aware of that. I think the way to think about Urbit in the near term as kind of like the ultimate productivity tool. So we're surrounded by all of these different ways that to, um, you know, uh, collaborate and communicate, right? Uh, any organization, company, group of friends, whatever, usually is switching between, you know, in the company case, it's like Asana, GitHub, Google Docs, Google Drive, Dropbox, whatever. And in the group of friends case, it's like Instagram, maybe a little Google Drive, Google Docs, and a bunch of different chat applications. This, from a design standpoint, is truly terrible. And so what we envision is something much more like when you bring a group of people together, you just pick a set of modules that you want to use, a, different, a few different ways that you want to communicate and collaborate, tasks, documents, chat, whatever. Invite everybody to that shared space. And everyone uses Urbit. All of their data is secure and private to them, persists forever. So I wake up in the morning... And what I'm presented with is the groups of people that I want to interact with and the things going on in those groups. All of that data is in one place. I'm not switching between applications. I'm not figuring out how to aggregate notifications and so on. Um, it all sort of exists in a single unified interface that you know doesn't sell your data, doesn't show you ads. It's really very clean and polished and unified. It's, yeah, it sounds like kind of your own personal cloud in a way. I don't want to you know, discount the vision, but that's kind of the vibe I'm kind of getting. Yeah. No, I don't think that's discounting it at all. Like, that's a non-trivial problem to solve. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. We used to call it a personal cloud computer where, you know, the difference is that pretty much everything you use in the cloud today is is not a computer in the sense that you control it, right? So we want something that lives in the cloud that can live forever but you have a lot of agency over that you can decide what to do and how to do it um, without being kind of locked into how a particular service provider or application provider uh, wants you to use their service. So this means for a user, I should be able to decide, you know, which modules I use with which people. And for a developer, it should mean that when I write something, I'm writing it just on top of a youth that talks to the data that the user has without having to sort of convince them to use a new service. So right now, like if I want to build a new task management, you know, Asana is apparently about to go public. So if you're about to start a new task management tool, you have this really difficult problem, which is how do I get people to switch from the existing options, Asana, Trello, whatever, to whatever I'm, you know, promoting. And so in an Urbit world, what I very much hope is that if you're a developer, it should be easy to build on top of this whole stack that we provide to you. You ship something to the network, and 
when people install it, they basically can easily port their data from one thing to the next. So you have like much more fluid competition between uh, different alternatives for how people might communicate, collaborate, and so on. Galen, I'm glad I'm having you on because, and hopefully this crash course is, is helpful for the listeners because now I'm starting to get it and I appreciate that. So it kind of sounds like you guys are shipping a general purpose code base and that's basically everyone's could use that as their own personal cloud computer. Can you explain how important that is versus today where everybody uses, you know, different services across different cloud providers and that's how everything is kind of all over the place? Yeah, certainly. So like I said at the beginning, though, I'm I have a design background, uh, and I I think that the most glaring thing to me, which I actually think is not obvious to most people, or it's not the first thing that people think of, is the fact that as a user experience, you know, switching between a bunch of browser tabs and a bunch of different applications on my phone is onerous, complicated, and actually even just purely visually, aesthetically really ugly. All the interfaces are different. All the interfaces are, are determined by the service providers. It's actually really, really confusing. And it's just not a very good, it's not a very good user experience. So I think from the user experience standpoint, the world that we live in now is just completely terrible. <laughs> from a security and privacy standpoint, so this is the thing that I think has become much more you know, widely understood and people are excited about, which is great. Or they're excited about the fact that let me put it another way. Everyone has finally realized that having someone else run your software means you really don't have any great guarantees of security and privacy. And the downstream effects of that are unfortunate in that you don't know whether your data may be leaked somehow or may you know go out into the public sphere in a way that you don't expect. Um, and you don't really know what happens to it after the fact in terms of it being sold to advertisers or mined in some way that you, uh, you know, is a little bit uncomfortable. I think that while I appreciate that everyone is bothered by this fact, I actually find that to be something that it's hard to actually sense, like as a user, why that is not very good. You know, like when I use Gmail, I don't, I use an ad blocker. I don't really notice what's going on behind the scenes. I think the, the thing that's a little bit insidious that is happening is that the interfaces that were provided are determined by our like basically um, getting us to use them more. So the really weird thing about the business model of having a giant company mine your data is that their incentive is simply to keep you locked into the thing as much as possible. So I think of one of the things that I'm excited about Urbit being able to do is actually provide technology to people that they use less, that they don't think about, that's sort of invisible to them, and that doesn't have this incentive of mining their data to make them use the thing more. I think the last thing is really that is the general impermanence of cloud services. If a cloud service like Google is very successful, you know, I generally trust that my email is not going to go away tomorrow. But I saw someone tweeting about this the other day. I thought this is the right way to think about it. That for some of us, at least certainly for me, for those of who know how this stuff works, you kind of inevitably become like a digital prepper in that you're like ready for the coming data apocalypse with any given service. Meaning more specifically that these services go away, you know, like new startups try new things and they don't work out. And if you really loved the thing, it may disappear and with it, all of the energy that you put into it. And that's, 
terrible. Like that sucks. It's, it's sort of like annoying, frustrating. And, uh, I think it reduces the rate at which people will try new things and experiment with what software can do. So yeah, the existing way that we build cloud software is a mess, I think. And it's basically just a function of the fact that if you want to build a cloud service, you have to run the server, control the server side code. Like it's a, it's just a, it's just based on the way that the current technology stack works. So that's where sort of Urbit just solves this foundational problem of give everyone an OS they can run, and a lot of these patterns will change completely. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. I'd like to give a quick shout-out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. Galen, if there's ever a doomsday preppers season where we focus on the web, I'm, I'm going to laugh if I watch it and think back to this episode. <laughs> I mean, you're seeing some of that to some degree. I'm actually like surprised at how quickly people have started the level of backlash towards social media and sort of big tech in general has happened a lot faster than I would have expected. No, I think at the end of the day, I don't expect that to be the thing that causes people to switch, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's okay. I agree. And you know, your explanation is excellent and kind of the issues around building cloud software. I guess the, the next question for you there is, and I don't know enough about this, so no, good question for you, but a lot of what you said is developers can come to Urbit and kind of create software and put it out in the world. What are the incentives for the developers to do this? Because I always feel like at a high level, if you release stuff for free and anybody could mess around with it, you kind of lose a lot of the value accrual on the lock-in. But I think that's kind of a lot of the point of Urbit. Yeah, good question. I think that uh, it's probably important to, for people to understand where we just really like where we are now and how we intend to get to these things. We're not, we're certainly not quite there yet, but let's see. So yeah, how basically how do developers make money? Like how do you incentivize uh, people to actually build on a new platform? Right. Like that's the, that's sort of the crux of the question. Yeah, completely. Just wondering kind of, you know, the big incentive is kind of to get people to, you know, build code to ship it so that people can build and on kind of the urban ecosystem or within it. But I'm always wondering like, you know, if it's free and it's out there, you know, how are they going to make money? Like what's their incentive? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, let's see. We've coursed over a lot of stuff. So there are two, there are probably two things to fill in. So well, the one most important one is how the, how Urban ID, the identity system works, because that has some, there's some overlap here. So to run Urban, the operating system, you need an identity. Um, the, 
Urban ID address space is finite. It's finite in part to combat spam because we want an address to be valuable enough that you don't want to send spam from it and therefore get blacklisted and lose the money that you spent on the address. So it's like sort of inherently civil resistant. And it's we, we want the address space to be distributed in such a way where there's no central authority that's authenticating who gets an address and who does not. So it's not only finite in terms of its total size, uh, but it's divided up into blocks that distribute other blocks. So at the top, there's 256 galaxies that distribute, each of which distribute 256 stars, making a total of 65,000. Each star distributes 65,000 planets, making for a total of 4 billion. A simple way to remember this is just 2 to the 8th, 2 to the 16th, 2 to the 32nd. Don't worry about the address space hierarchy too much. It relates to the developer question only in as much as you can think of that hierarchy sort of like ISP-level infrastructure. So those nodes, those super nodes, provide some services in the network. They help peers discover one another. And they will likely provide help doing things like distributing software and maybe even providing some compute services. So the sort of most fundamental incentives in Urbit are centered around address space distribution. So for people who own bigger blocks of address space, you know, who will make ideally make money selling off smaller chunks of address space, their costs are likely covered in terms of increasing the usability of the system overall. And we see this to some degree now, where lots of the early developers are people who own pieces of the system and are you know, clearly incentivized to increase its usability. In the long run, though, there is, uh, there's no reason to think that there's... like we, we actually have a significant technical advantage in terms of how you could distribute software over the urban network and get paid for it. So you could distribute compiled code over Urbit where you pay for it by subscription. So a developer creates something, compiles it down to our machine code, and then I go to that developer and pay them in whatever. And uh, I only get updates, you know, given that I'm paying from the address on the network that is receiving the code. That I think of as something that's like a little bit further down the line because we have the benefit of these early incentives from relatively technical address space holders. And honestly, just people who think this is really fun, uh, which I don't think is, which I think is kind of bigger than people think, you know, like a lot of the internet was built more <laughs> either for fun or on a government grant. And I suppose if you think about address space incentives as being similar to government grants, we have kind of the same mix of people contributing today. And then I think, yeah, as the network grows over time, um, ideally, Urbit is a platform where, yeah, people definitely sell software and get paid for creating that software and, and updating it and continuing to keep it alive. Hey, everyone. We'll continue this conversation shortly. But first, a quick word from our amazing sponsors. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets but don't know where to start building your portfolio? We have the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at b.tc slash eToro reaction, linked in the show notes below. 
So there's a good path where there is a well thought out kind of path for people to make money. So I appreciate that. And that makes sense. And it definitely sounds a little further out because you guys are focused on the foundational stuff now. And that makes sense. And kind of building on this point, I guess another, you know, potentially hard question or, or philosophical question here is, and this applies to everyone in the crypto space, not just you, but a lot of this is a huge cultural shift for people, you know, to use Urbit versus their normal services. And I always question what that inflection point will be. You know, I'm a Web3 DeFi bull, but I'm always wondering, you know, what that'll be. How do you kind of think about that with Urbit, like on just uptake? Like, do you think it'll start with crypto and go mainstream? Or do you think we need Apple and Google to, you know, become big brother overlords that they already kind of are? What do you think happens there? Yeah, that's a good question. There may be multiple answers to it. Or, or maybe there are different answers, definitely, like depending on the kind of thing that you're building. I think that the one of the basic sort of, or perhaps the basic thesis about urban adoption, or kind of like perhaps maybe one of the primary advantages that we see in having people use urban over other things is that Urban is a system that's really designed for digital communities to be able to shape their own environments, right? So not only can a group of people customize the set of things that they use to keep in touch or to collaborate or whatever, they can even potentially extend that set and build new software. And so that, I think, is a sort of categorical advantage over existing systems. Um, the, I mean, the main difference is that Urban is in many ways just not as mature. So the addressable community of people who see that advantage and want to use Urbit today um, is certainly very small. But I think the wedge that's really important, and that's I think it's I think it's important for all of this stuff, is really that what matters is the ability of for sort of like real communities, like real very entrenched communities, to form in this new world. So even if those communities are small, the important, the most important thing is their kind of is their stickiness and their desire to stick around and, and help improve the thing. So I would say, I mean, I think it's reasonable to be bullish about the general crypto and decentralization movement because the level of stickiness and enthusiasm of the people involved is really high. The important thing is that you can see that work mimetically, right? That you can actually bring other people in and you can see that flywheel effect start to happen. The only so downstream of okay, you have to have this community effect where the community is amazing and people, or it's possible to build amazing communities so people are attracted to that purely just for social reasons. The real gating tactical problem there is that the inter user interface, both for Urbit, like literally today, although I think we're, we have a lot, like we're doing a lot on this front over the course of the year, and certainly for broader crypto. Problem is that the user interface sucks. It's just not that easy to use this stuff. So it's not possible for that flywheel effect to start happening. Like you have a lot of amazing, really enthusiastic people. There are actually categorically cool things that happen on these systems, but they're too way too hard to use. But I don't think that's like a strategic problem. I think that's kind of like a tactical issue. It's like a practical thing that has to be fixed. And I think it's a it's maybe a shift in focus for some teams in the broader industry. I mean, for us, it's always been a focus. It just takes time to make these things, you know, feel really nice to use. No, that's fair. And at a high level, I mean, what, how does Urbit make the user interface or give developers the tools to make their user interfaces that much better? Is it because you guys 
don't have to deal with like immature like web three stack components and you're kind of rethinking the entire stack like what makes it easier for you guys to really drive a better ux yeah good question so the operating system itself like the whole sort of conceit of urbit as an os is that we take everything you know a conventional web app takes like a bare cloud server and they put many you know i think wordpress is like half a million lines of code or something like that which involves scripting languages and databases and all this other stuff, all these components that you sort of duct tape and zip tie together to turn into like a working thing. As a system, the idea is sort of like that Urbit provides all those affordances as a single system. It's a data store, uh, it's a network, it's a build system, it's a file system. It's pretty much all the components of the stack uh, in a very simple, tight, refined, single package. So in terms of developer attention, like what does the developer have to care about? The developer is really just figuring out, okay, uh, what kind of data do I want to store in this thing? Um, and what is the interface that I want to present to the user? So we even go one step further and try and provide, and we're, this is certainly where one of our most sort of active areas of work, is provide user interface components for the developer to, to put to work as well. So you can think of it just like, we provide this huge kit of prefabricated components so that when the, when a developer shows up, you're like assembling stuff really, really quickly uh, rather than having to put the whole system together yourself. I, you know, a lot can be done. Or we're doing a lot of work to improve this experience sort of this year and, and probably even into next year. But the system itself is designed in this way uh, to make that incredibly easy. So the focus is really like the focus of the developer should be on you know, do something novel and make the user experience really, really good. I should emphasize also, I think, the basically the UI components part. Like, I think that one of the reasons that, like, you know, iOS feels really good, even that Android feels really good, that desktop OSs feel really good, is that there's this, you know, finite set of very well-thought-through user interface components, which are part of the toolkit for a developer when they're developing on these platforms. Uh, and I think that's that's something we care a lot about, and it's something that's like essential to the success of a platform like this. That basically the, the parts that you use to assemble whatever it is you're going to build uh, have to be, you know, have to be really nice. Like you can't make a prefabricated house out of just raw lumber. It's going to look like a shed, right? Like, but if you get a bunch of really nicely milled steel and glass, like you'll end up with something that looks really nice. Fair, and I I definitely agree there on delivery delivery, and that's kind of the Apple standpoint. So. Galen, we went through all the, the tech stuff. We went through the vision. Let's let's turn tides a little bit. Let's go towards some of the fun stuff, some more of the you know, philosophical type questions here. Um, I think a lot of people know your co-founder, I believe Christian is Bitcoin sign guy, you know, the guy that was behind Janet Yellen at the Fed Reserve meetings. How does Bitcoin at a high level play into Urbit? Like, are you interacting here? Are you integrating? Where exactly does like the Bitcoin community sit in relation to Urbit? Good question. I love working with Christian. Christian's a great guy. Um, he's not a co-founder, um, but he does work with us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, no problem. Uh, I, I don't. I never like to like down title someone, but I'm like, yeah, that's that's like a little bit out no, of, no, no. Out of a reach. It's honestly, more uh, it's quick research prior, and I uh, I messed that up. My bad. No, 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 no problem, no problem. It's like um, I'm glad to see that Christian is assertive enough about his involvement that he appears that way. Anyway, yeah. So we've been um, Christian actually found us out of. So he's been obviously excited about and interested in Bitcoin for a long time. 
and was very concerned with this problem that Bitcoin in its sort of current phase or it's on its current trajectory has a real risk of you know, kind of like a Coinbase becoming the Fed or that, you know, real, real exchange centralization. Urbit has had overlap with the Bitcoin community, honestly, almost since the very beginning, um, because I think many Bitcoiners have seen that, you know, it's incredibly difficult to self-custody. There are not a lot of good options um, from purely from a user experience standpoint. And that Urbit is a really nice complement to a blockchain. So let's take, for example, just simple payments. So if you and I want to transact, there are okay solutions for self-custody wallets, but how do you and I know each other? How do we interact in the digital world? How do I know that when you provide me a Bitcoin address, uh, I know that it's you providing the right address? So there's not great integration between how we communicate and interact in the digital world and Bitcoin itself. And so I think that's just one example of how something like Urbit, or certainly, I mean, really Urbit itself is well suited to that, right? Like Urbit can hold your keys. Uh, Urbit has an authenticated digital identity through which you can both communicate with people and transact with them. So that has gets us a little bit closer to solving some of the centralization risks of Bitcoin, meaning people should be custodying some of their, at least some of their own Bitcoin. And it also gets us closer to people are transacting directly where they're not actually relying on an exchange holding some amount of Bitcoin in order to facilitate their transactions. So I guess that's actually not very, there's, yeah, I mean, I think the, the more philosophical answer is basically like, if you want to use a blockchain, you need a computer and you want that computer to be really secure. And Unix is just not that. Like, Urban is a much better better option, uh, technically, just because it's so compact. It's simple to reason about. It's repeatable. It has a lot of technical qualities that make it really well-suited to interact with the blockchain from. No, that's fair. I like that explanation. There's so many questions I have to ask you. I'll limit kind of my responses as much as interested as I am. But moving to the other side of things, and you alluded to this earlier, but five or 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, Everybody has their own Urbit kind of node planet, what have you. What does this mean for the tech giants of today? Like, it's my understanding that you guys are can be built on top of the cloud providers like AWS, Google Compute, Microsoft Azure, which I agree with. I, I don't necessarily agree with people trying to take that on. Just it's an economies of scale and latency and redundancy game. But what does it mean for the Apples, the Microsofts, the Google, Snapchats, Instagrams of the world if Urbit takes off? Yeah, it's a good question. The honest answer is I don't know, <laughs> but I'm happy to speculate. <laughs> so yeah, so we do we layer over the existing cloud, and we are perfectly happy with the AWS um, GCP Azure's of the world. It's great. It's an incredible service. Like in some ways, Urban is just like this is it's amazing. You can get an internet connected commuter anywhere in the world right now for from a few clicks. It's like the only problem is you can't do anything with it. So it's like we're here to make it possible for you to actually use it. But of course, yeah, once you can use the thing, what happens to this world of your existing services? I think there are, the most likely answer is that, I, I think the closest historical equivalency is kind of like AOL and the internet. 
So if you think about existing dominant services today as being like the AOLs and CompuServes and Prodigies or whatever, you know, these kind of like online, quote unquote, online services, right, of the, of the early or to mid 90s. And Urban being this, the internet where it's incredibly versatile and open ended, but it also is kind of rough around the edges. I mean, the, the internet ultimately dominated those services because it was more fun, more versatile, and in a way sort of more wild and open ended. I think because the sheer scale of the Facebooks, Googles, Apples of the world, and the scale of their lock-in, if you saw a real, like a lot of momentum towards people, like if people were really actively adopting and using Urbit, I think that large companies basically figure out some way to make it possible for you to kind of like link your Urbit ID with your Google ID and like port your data over or something like that. Like you would figure out some refactoring by which um, your existing apps and services actually just connect to Urbit instead of connecting to this sort of like proprietary closed data store, which is operated by the company. The problem is that destroys the business model of most of these companies, uh, except Apple, of course, or you know anyone who's actually charging you to use the service. So it's tough to think about. Yeah, I mean, the truth is that I just don't, I don't know. Like, I guess there are really two options. It's like either Herb is very success, becomes pretty successful and you start seeing companies figure out how to get their services to run on top of Herbit and, and people are kind of like en masse requesting their data out to their Herbit nodes. Or, you know, it's actually that you have a much more like AOL in the internet situation, which is that AOL just goes away uh, and people move to a new platform. I don't think that's impossible, certainly. Um, I think that's actually totally possible. In fact, one of the things that I think is kind of funny about the discourse around the internet today is everyone seems to think that none of these things are going away. And I am very sure that at least some of them are going away and not just because of things like Urbit, but simply because that's the way it works. Um, So it's totally possible that this entire world of, of web services, these giant companies, if they're not just simply massively reduced in size, they just go away completely. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, most people are don't believe in change much, and then once the world changes, everybody you know prances on like it was the norm all along. <laughs> yeah, well, I one thing I think about a lot is that like I don't we rely on these things a lot, but we actually don't put there's a way in which we don't put that much weight on them. Like they aren't sort of existentially important to people on an individual level. I like to think about. So let's see. So it's like Strava. I don't know. Do you you run or ride a bike or anything or use Strava for anything? I don't know. So Strava is this app that tracks your um, fitness. I mean, I think it'll kind of track anything now. It's like, you know, kayaking and record it on Strava. So it records like your heart rate and where you're going and like how quickly you're going and stuff like that. But basically it's this huge sink of biometric data. Strava is great. It's super cool. It's helpful for, you know, personal training. Like it's, it's, a really great thing in terms of like understanding your own personal fitness. But like from my perspective, it's also super tragic because I would love to, you know, 60, 80 years from now, whatever, towards the end of my life, be able to like know what my resting heart rate was or whatever, when I was in my uh, like late twenties, early thirties. Right. That seems incredibly unlikely that Strava is going to survive for 60 years. Like they're a pretty successful company, but still it's just like, that's just not going to happen. And so I think that one of the things that ultimately makes it really difficult for me to see how especially these like medium-sized services survive is that faced with something that is a truly permanent archive, like I can put data into this, I'm going to hand it down to my grandchildren, it's actually going to last forever. 
there's just no way like you would know on a personal, no one's going to choose to use something that might go away uh, and is probably selling your data for ads. Like it just, it's like a no brainer as long as the interface actually works really well. So that, that feels to me like, you know, whether it's us or someone else, I mean, this stuff just can't possibly survive. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of ser- actually serve the need that it's claiming to serve in almost all these cases. Right. It's like, this is supposed to be something you're able to rely on that you should really care about that should integrate into your life, but you actually can't totally actually do that. It's a little bit fake. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to grasp what you're saying at a conceptual level. Like it, not that it's wrong. It's just that it's like a, a big ask, right? I mean, like when somebody, you know, God forbid passes away, you know, you pass down their physical items and, you know, some memories, et cetera. But what you're talking about is really passing down somebody's entire digital life forever to their family, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I thought actually like one of the, I was thinking about this recently because I uh, had a family member pass away and was, who was, you know, lived a very long, incredible life. And I was looking at his um, photo albums from when he was a, you know, just had just arrived in this country, um, was studying in New York. It's incredible. There are all these photos of like uptown in the early forties, right? Like it's so cool, but at the same time, it's so low resolution. Like it's just literally just, there aren't that many photos. There's not that much data. And, you know, I want to know so much more about what happened. And so it's just so fascinating, even just purely from the standpoint of like family history, what happened and, you know, where did I come from? And so when, yeah, when you think far into the future, I mean, we create all this data today, like where, where is it going? I mean, do you, are you, is it even possible? It seems likely to me, you know, if things just stayed exactly the way they are. It seems likely that people would just get nothing. Like you just end up with like, you'd end up at the end of your life. You're like, oh yeah, like I used, uh, I used iCloud forever. And then there was a great iCloud apocalypse of 2030 and my shit's all gone, you know? Uh, like, <laughs> uh, so that maybe that like cements the digital prepper like mentality. I don't think that's like something that people act on. Um, but I think given an alternative that answers this question, people would like, you know, comparing one to the other, oh, this actually claims can very credibly last forever versus this thing that maybe will last. You know, I think you'd pick the thing that lasts forever. No, I... I think that it's hard framing, right? Because every generation when they're in it feels like they're at the cutting edge of the world. It'll never change. Like I doubt, you know, my grandparents, you know, read the paper and thought they were, you know, the most up-to-date humans ever. Meanwhile, I'm pulling up Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat, and I think I'm insanely connected. It's just hard to conceptualize that these things will definitely go away as tech progresses. It's kind of inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you're, I think you're, I don't think, yeah, you're right. I don't think that I should slightly, like, I don't think this is like the thing that drives, you know, urban adoption, basically. Like, I, I don't think this is a, the linchpin. Maybe the way I think about it is much more like, uh, if I'm looking for a single fact that will lead to a major shift in the way that people think about, or like in the, in the technology environment, basically, right? Like, what technologies, companies, and literal pieces of technologies will dominate in the future? It's hard for me to see something that's so fragile and requires so much maintenance um, continuing for a really long time. I think that that's maybe more the way I think about it. It's not like in the mind of the individual user, really. No, fair enough. And I got one last question for you, and then I got one from Nick Carter as well, I'll ask after. But the next or last question to kind of close out this thought process is, you know, where exactly is Urbit? What's the timeline? What are you looking forward to? And uh, what's keeping you up at night? 
Uh, let's see. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I'm glad to like spend some time on sort of where we are now. So Urbit has actually run a live network since 2013. I think it's, you know, we reset it from time to time, but there has been an Urbit network live uh, since then. Um, so the, the project is very much like something that is real and, you know, usable, testable. It's, you can certainly play with it. We don't really heavily encourage people to do that because Urbit is still not sort of we haven't hit a milestone where we feel like, hey, everybody should be checking this out. But I think as an open source software project, it's really important to let people know concretely what's going on. So let's see. So the main milestone that we're looking at sort of even within this quarter is releasing what we're calling OS1, which is a super stripped down web app that allows you to chat, write, and share links with a a small group of friends. The onboarding flow is pretty smooth. You can actually invite people via email. They get a little cryptographic asset in the form of this identity. And you can log into this super stripped down, super simple OS to communicate and, and collaborate with other people. We'll spend this quarter and part of next quarter just kind of like homesteading this thing, right? Starting to live on it ourselves a little bit, onboarding other communities into it, and just experimenting with Urbit really for the first time as if it were just a product. So most of the last couple of years have been get the infrastructure to be stable and reliable uh, and experiment with different interface paradigms, like different ways of using the thing. So we sort of settled on a client that we like. We've developed it into something that feels pretty good, super simple. And, and the major, major achievement is really the operating system itself is running pretty well. It's pretty stable. The network is working well. So that's the main thing that will happen over the next couple of months. In the middle of the year, we'll, we'll sort of expand the footprint of OS1 significantly, release it as a native client, and improve the onboarding a little bit. That's probably well, that's what we're calling OS2, and I feel like that's the point at which you know, our website will actually just have a CTA that says, hey, install and use this now. So those are the major milestones or kind of like that's kind of maybe gives a sense of what's going on with the project as it is and in the very short term. What do I worry about the most? Such a good question. I hope you answer. I hope you ask everybody on this podcast that question. <laughs> that's like the question I would want to know the answer to. It's not an easy one. No, it's not. I, I actually don't worry too much i like to worry about things that are far out on the horizon so by the time they've gotten here i've already worried about them a lot the near-term thing that's going to require a lot of work from us is that i think you know urban has a really great community of like enthusiasts so people who love the vision love the project who want to participate even like run infrastructure experiment with developing on the thing and i think it's a it's a real like change in attitude to say no you know what we want people to use this who don't really care about the technology. And that I think is a real shift in our attitude just towards like the kinds of people who are on the network and towards how we do support and all this stuff. So that that's the thing that I feel like, you know, running a company is a little bit like driving a um like a container ship or something. And so it's like if you're trying to make a shift in the way that this group of people does things, it's like it takes a little bit of time to bring the thing around. So I feel like that's the thing that's where you know you can see the ship slowly making this big arc, like that's the uh, that's the change in our thinking that requires the most input of effort. Like that's the thing I feel like I'm like working on the most. No, that's fair. And uh, yeah. I have a question from Nick Carter, and this plays into your timeline. It sounds like when version two launches, it'll kind of answer his question. But I'm asking it verbatim because why not? Nick said, "When will a developer <laughs> like me be able to use the bit without asking Christian and Logan for help every five minutes?" 
<laughs> Actually, he's asking he, the real thing he's asking about, which is really is the right answer and the, the important thing that I coursed over is that what will launch this year, actually quite soon, although we'll roll it out probably slightly in terms of like it'll go through sort of private beta this quarter and then maybe publicly later in the year, is hosting. So the real thing that will make this much easier for people to use and experiment with is when we run hosting, meaning that you will be able to go from email invite, claim a piece of cryptographic property, and we will spin up a node for you. So you just go through the whole thing in a browser. And that is definitely the point at which Nick will be using Urban every day. Um, <laughs> without asking for your help. <laughs> yes, without having to ask anyone in the office for help. Uh, and hopefully more and more, hopefully not just Nick. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, uh, it is a good question. And one last question for you, and you kind of alluded to this on the value accrual section, but how do people like myself, like Nick Carter, like, you know, potential stakeholders get involved and, you know, not share in the upside, but, you know, potentially share in the upside? Like, where exactly do we all get involved if we're bullish about Urbit now? Yeah, so there's, you know, the, the address space was launched it's so the address space is registered on the ethereum blockchain could conceivably be registered really on any blockchain it's a pretty simple system it's just a system of you know who owns what address and can that address you know issue other addresses that system is live uh, we put that live a year ago um, so it's totally possible to buy bigger blocks of address space primarily through the other company that you know operates in the urban ecosystem called urban.live and they are actually literally urbit.live in your web browser. Um, there are also uh, addresses trade on OpenSea a little bit too, which is an NFT exchange. So urbit addresses are NFTs. They're like ERC721. And it's worth probably like giving a really brief explanation of, you know, if you own one of these addresses, not only can it issue smaller addresses. So think of it like if you own a star, you're kind of like a local ISP that sells email addresses or something like that. But you also likely... Um, generate revenue by providing some services. So you you may be connecting nodes on the network, uh, you may be running some compute for them. And what we imagine and see happening, both will probably do it, I think Urban.Live will do it, is we see people starting to operate infrastructure, sort of infrastructure as a service, where if you do decide to buy a block of address space, you're not only going to be selling off some of those addresses, but providing services likely through an infrastructure provider where you let them uh, take it on for you um, and help you get that stuff done. Uh, so anyway, there are two sort of avenues by which you can participate in the ecosystem. And actually, people already do. Uh, and that's basically by yeah, owning a block of address space and then uh, providing services in the network. Galen, this has been an incredible interview. I mean, from your vision for a new OS to kind of talking about where you think, you know, Web 2 and Web 3 are going and the interplay with Facebook and the cloud providers. I think it was really uh, incredible to have you on. And for everybody listening, uh, Galen and Urbit's Twitter will be in the show notes and also their webpage and also a lot of cool videos on them, which helped me understand it, uh, not as much as this podcast. So Galen, I really appreciate uh, your time and coming on and I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to track your progress. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was super fun. Good conversation. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.